We're going to start by praying this morning. Typically, I'd read through the whole chapter, um, and then we'd pray, and we're going to start by prayer, and um, I, I've really enjoyed being in Ecclesiastes. I, 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 I love this book. I'm glad you do too, Josiah. Um, hopefully, maybe one other person might enjoy it as well, but um, when I got into my study of it this week on Monday, after I read through it a few times, I came upstairs. I don't know if I was talking to Phil. I can't remember if he was in the office or not on Monday. But uh, I know at some point I just said that we, get, we got ourselves a doozer. Like, chapter 6, if you haven't read it in advance, and you'll hear me say this a couple times throughout the message, it's just kind of dark. And it's it's depressing a bit. Like, that's chapter 6. It's dark, and it's depressing, and... Um, by that I just mean Solomon again is just, he's searching, searching for the meaning of life and he's sharing his observations that he's made as he looks out at life under the sun, uh, meaning just apart from God, just this is what I see when people live their lives apart from God, I've noticed this and he'll say things like, it's just a heavy burden that God's placed upon man. It is a vanity, it's a, it's a meaningless thing and you're going to see that and so uh, so just smile at the beginning. Um, there, is, there is some encouraging things that I'm going to bring into this, but let me just pray and I'll, we'll get into this. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We believe that every single word that we have in our Bibles that you have given to us has been breathed out by you. And even though we approach a chapter like this that seems to be dark, that seems to be depressing, that seems to lack hope, Lord, we know that these are your words that you have recorded for us for this very moment in our lives. And that whenever we read this chapter, Lord, we know that you are standing behind these words, and that you have them here for us for a reason. Or that we might know you better, that we might draw near to you, that we might not find hope ultimately in the things of this world, that, Lord, our attention and our hearts would be moved away from idols, from things in which you've created, Lord, for us to enjoy, for our good, that we wouldn't find our hope ultimately in those things, but, Lord, Lord we would enjoy them, but ultimately we'd find our satisfaction in you, that our hearts would be moved to great joy, Lord, because of you and this relationship that you've brought us into because of your son, Jesus, whom you've sent to die for us, to save us. And so, Lord, bless, bless our time in this chapter this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, one, or 10 being extremely happy, how happy would you say that you are today in your life? Does anybody ever track this? You ever, do you ever, we do have a tracker? I do. On my phone, I have, I have an app that has a bunch of things I track in life. And one of the things I put on there, I think about a year ago, was just happy. Like it just says happy, and it's just a simple yes or no. Were you happy today? And I think in the last 10 months, I had 14 unhappy days. And it's very subjective, okay? It's just, it's just subjective. Anyways, how would you rate your happiness today? Are, are you happy? 
Are you living in the joy of the Lord today? And by today, I mean not just today, but like this, this season of your life. Are you satisfied with what God has given to you? So in my study, I also came across this article, and I want to read, read it to you. It's not that lengthy, but uh, it's titled, No Satisfaction, Why What You Have Is Never Enough. And it was written by a guy named... Jonathan Clement, and he wrote this years ago for the Wall Street Journal. So this is not a Christian article. This is just a guy writing for the Wall Street Journal, and he was thinking about people, and he was thinking about life, and he was thinking about, are people really happy? Even though we live in America, are are people happy? And so he wrote the following. He says, we may have life and liberty, but the pursuit of happiness isn't going so well. As a country, we are richer than ever, yet surveys show that Americans are no happier than they were 30 years ago. The key problem, we weren't very good at figuring out what will make us happy. And so what, it, what, he's, what he's getting at there is like, we have this right to the pursuit of happiness. The problem is, we don't really know what that is. We don't know what we're actually running after. We want to be happy, but, but how do we get there? We constantly hanker after fancier cars and fatter paychecks, and initially such things boost our happiness. But the glow of satisfaction quickly fades, and soon we're yearning for something else. Similarly, we tell our friends that our kids are our greatest joy. Has anybody ever said that? Maybe not, okay. He goes on and he says, research, however, suggests the arrival of children lowers parents' reported happiness as they struggle with the daily stresses involved, which raises the obvious question, why do we keep striving after these things? Experts offer two explanations. One is we're not built to be happy. Rather, we're built to survive and reproduce. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors didn't struggle mightily to protect and feed their families. The promise of happiness, meanwhile, is just a trick to jolly us along. This is an incentive scheme for the benefit of our genes, argues Boston money manager Terry Burnham, co-author of Mean Genes. It's a very fundamental trick that's played on us, this lure of perpetual bliss. Don't like the idea that we're hoodwinked by some hardwired set of ancient instincts? Blame it instead on societal beliefs. Working hard and raising children may not make us happier, but these beliefs keep society functioning, and those who embrace them prosper and end up passing these values on to their children. The second thing was we're bad at forecasting. Consider a study by academics Daniel Kamen and David Chicade. They asked university students in, Midwest, in the Midwest and Southern California where they thought someone like themselves would be happier, and both groups picked California, in large part because of the better weather. Yet when asked how satisfied they were with their own lives, both groups were equally happy. He goes on to say the following. He says, when you're thinking about moving to California, you're thinking about the beaches and the weather. Mr. Shackey said, a management professor at the University of California, San Diego. But you aren't thinking about the fact that you'll still be spending a lot of time in the grocery store or doing chores. People emphasize differences that are easy to observe ahead of time and forget about the similarities. When we predict what will make us happy, we're also influenced by how we feel today. If we buy the weekly, 
If we buy the weekly groceries just after we've had lunch, we'll shop much more selectively. Isn't that true? He's saying if you're, if you're going shopping on a, on a full stomach, you're going to shop differently. He said the downside, a few days later, we'll be staring unhappily into an empty refrigerator. Maybe most important, we fail to anticipate how quickly we will adapt to improvements in our lives. We think everything will be wonderful when we move into the bigger house. We don't realize that after a few months, we will take the extra space for granted. Experience should help us avoid repeating such mistakes, but it doesn't, in part because we don't accurately recall how we really felt, says Harvard psychology professor Daniel Gilbert, author of Stumbling on Happiness. One example, he said, we work devilishly hard to get that next promotion because we're sure it will leave us elated. We forget that when we last got promoted, it was a bit of a letdown. With any luck, just knowing we are susceptible to these pitfalls will help. But you might also try a reality check. Professor Gilbert says, suppose you think you'll be happier if you move to a small rural town, adopt a child, or quit your job and become a high school math teacher. Don't rely on the opinions of people who live in small towns, have adopted kids, or become teachers. Instead, spend some time observing these folks and see whether they're happy. Becoming a teacher sounds quite romantic, Professor Gilbert says, but hanging around a high school teacher may quickly disabuse you of that notion. So he's written a whole article just sort of kind of poking at the reality. It's like, yeah, we live in America. We have the right to the pursuit of happiness. The problem is not everybody's happy because everybody doesn't kind of know, like, where do we go to get this thing? We want this, and you have the right to it, but we search for it, and, and the reality is sometimes it just feels like we just don't quite get there. That, that were just what Solomon would say is it's, it's kind of the chasing of the wind. We run after it, and when we think we got it, it's gone. We can never fully get our arms around it. And so what we're going to learn today in chapter 6 is this. Living life apart from God is an unhappy life. Therefore, we must trust in God and find our hope in Jesus Christ. And so this isn't a a new truth, if you've been listening at all from Solomon. This is a constant refrain that he's just coming at it in different angles, trying to help us understand that when we think we can live life apart from God, when we can just kind of go it alone and pursue the American dream, all the things that he was talking about here in this article, and that we don't actually need God because we actually live in America and we have the right to pursue happiness, what, he, what Solomon is going to say is you're never going to get there. You're just, you're just not going to get what you think you want apart from God. Living life apart from God is miserable. It's miserable, and he's going to show us. That's what I mean by this is kind of a dark and depressing chapter because he just kind of illustrates for us life apart from God. He looks at the man, or he looks at this person, and he shows us their life, and and it's just, it's miserable. It's miserable. It's not a good thing. And so life apart from God is an unhappy life. Therefore, we must learn to trust God. We must learn to trust God in Jesus Christ, and find our hope alone in Him. Now, to help us get there and understand this truth, we're going to look at four points this morning. In our first point, we learn that God can give you everything this world has to offer, 
But if he doesn't give you the power to enjoy it, you'll never be satisfied. Listen to that again. God can give you everything. Just think of something right now. What is it that you most want? We're heading towards Christmas. I've already asked a few people this question. What, what do you want for Christmas? Well, what's on your Christmas list? What, what's that thing that you think you're going to open up and you're just going to be elated with? And you can get it. What, what we're going to learn is Solomon's going to say, you can get that and you can get everything. But if God doesn't give you the power and the ability to enjoy it, it's kind of just misery. It's kind of depressing. told you it's going to be kind of dark, but it's going to be kind of fun as well, because we don't want to hope in these things. Look at verse 1, chapter 6. Solomon says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. So the man Solomon sees here is just someone who has it all. He's a rich man. He's got all the money he ever desired. All that he has and all that he ever really wants, he he has it. And he also has a lot of stuff. I'm going to assume here that, that this stuff that he has, that Solomon's thinking about or seeing, is really nice stuff. He probably has a really nice home with really nice things in his home. He probably has a really nice estate with really cool things to use on his property. He has it all. And he tells us that this man also had honor. And so what he means here is this man has all the money in the world, he has all the nice things in the world, and he has honor. He's, he's famous. He's, he's got respect from people around him. Everything he desired, he has, except the ability to enjoy it. He could go wherever it is he wants to go with whoever he wants to go with, but he can't enjoy it. He could eat whatever he wants, but he can't ultimately find satisfaction in those things. He can buy whatever he desires. He can do anything he wants in the world except, Solomon says, find joy in it. And as Solomon looked at this man's life, he says it's a, it's a grievous evil. It's something that just lies heavy on mankind. So if God was to give you whatever it is you wanted right now, but he wouldn't give you the ability to actually enjoy it. Would you want it? That's kind of a question facing us right now. That's what Solomon's doing. He's, he's just holding things up for us so that we might choose the right thing. So if you get to have whatever it is you want, whatever it is you desire at this moment, but you know you would never ultimately find satisfaction in it, and you wouldn't really be able to enjoy it, would you still want it? This is one of those just honest truths that lies in your heart. Would you want that thing, except you can't enjoy that thing? That's what Solomon sees going on. He sees somebody who has it all, but he doesn't have the ability to actually enjoy it. We learn something really important here in these verses about life. God's the giver of all things. He just is. He's the creator of everything. He's the one who's reigning and ruling 
over everything. He gives us everything we have, every penny, every possession, and every relationship that we have. It's all a gift from God. So if you have anything in this world, anything, it's because God has given it to you. There are no self-made billionaires in this world. There's no self-made millionaires in this world. If you own a business, the reason you own a business is because God has given this business to you and the ability to think the way you think. God is the giver of all things. You think about athletes. LeBron James comes to mind. He is who he is today because God has given him everything he has. And you are who you are today because God is the creator of all things and the giver of all things. And this includes the power to enjoy them as well. And what Solomon teaches us is that it's possible for God to give someone everything, wealth, possessions, honor, like the man here that Solomon sees, but, but not the power to actually enjoy them. See, without God, life is miserable. It's vanity. It's all meaningless. It's all a chasing after the wind, always running for something, but never actually getting it. Never actually be able to put our arms around it and hold on to it for very long because it's like a breath. It's getting colder. You guys know what that looks like. You breathe out in the morning, you see your breath for a second, and what happens? Gone. So when he says vanity, think that. And it's what he's saying. He says, this is vanity to have everything you desire, but the inability to enjoy it, it's a breath. It's there, and then it's just gone. It's a chasing after the wind. Philip Riken, in his commentary, wrote the following. He said, without God, we will still be discontent. It is only when we keep him at the center of our existence that we experience real joy in the gifts that God may give. The fear of the Lord is not just the beginning of knowledge. It's the source of satisfaction. I would say that's what Solomon's trying to teach us throughout this entire book. He's trying to teach us to fear God. He's going to show us that at the very end. You can skip there and look at chapter 12, and you'll say, hey, here's the end of the matter. Fear God and obey Him. Because life apart from God, he's just saying, it's miserable. I've seen it. He, he said, here, look at this guy. Just a heavy burden placed upon him to have it all including honor from this world, but the inability to enjoy it, the way in which God has created us to live and to enjoy it, it's just miserable. In our second point, Solomon tells us this, that it's better to have never been born than to live a life without being satisfied. If life apart from God is vanity and a chasing after the wind, always trying to find joy but never actually getting it, then Solomon concludes that this life is not one that is actually worth living. Again, this is it's a little depressing. It's dark. This is the wisest man. He's all just looking and he's just saying, if this is the way it's got to be, then I'd rather choose this. I'd rather choose not even being alive. Listen to how he says it. Verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, 
yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. See here, Solomon sees a man who again seems to have it all. He's got a hundred kids. Thousand years times two. He's just saying he's, he's lived the good life. And if you're judging it by Old Testament standards, this is a man who, who has a lot. But again, the inability to actually enjoy it. So a picture of somebody living his best life, but not being able to enjoy it. Not being satisfied in what God has given to him. Again, it's just a, it's a miserable place to be, to have it all, to live the good life, but to not fear God and to be able to actually enjoy those things that God has given to us. Solomon tells us that a stillborn child is better off than this man. The rich man died, he said, and there was no burial for him. I don't know why he wasn't buried. doesn't appear to have anybody around him, even though he had a bunch of family and lived 2,000 years, it appears that this man who had it all and appeared to be rich and have these things ends up in the end dying sort of alone with, with no covering, no burial, where at least when he observes a stillborn child, he just says, this child never even has to come into this life, but at least gets a burial. There's a little bit of honor there. He's just, he's just comparing these two, and he's just saying, if you're going to live a life apart from God and have it all, and not fear God and, and sort of be miserable. He's just saying it's better off not even living that life at all. It's a miserable place to be. Again, remember what he's trying to do as we're reading through this book. He's taking 12 chapters to sort of lead us in the right direction. And the right direction is that we might fear God. That we might not choose the things of this world over God, that when we do things like we just did earlier today by taking communion together, we would be reminded that we have a God who loves us and has given his only son to live in our place and die for us so that our sins would be forgiven and that we might be brought into a right relationship with him. These are, these are reminders that God has given to us, just like this chapter is a reminder where we have Solomon saying, don't be this man. Turn away from worshiping the things of this world. Find your hope in God. These things will never satisfy you. And I feel like he's got to say that to us over and over again. And we've been in here now six chapters and he keeps telling us the same thing. And there's a reason for it because we get, I think what the author said, we get hoodwinked into believing that we're actually going to be happy living a life apart from God. And he's just saying here, he's like, no, you're not. It's miserable. It might look happy. You might be on your Facebook feed or Instagram feed or just scrolling. You might think, man, that person's living their best life. And Solomon's saying, no, I've seen into that person's home. I know what it looks like. It's miserable. It's a dark place to be. And he's saying, it's actually better not to be that person. It's better to be a stillborn baby than that person. It's a miserable place to live apart from the grace of God. Derek Kidner said this, If this life is all and offers to some people frustration rather than fulfillment, leaving them nothing to pass on to those who depend on them, if further all alike are waiting their turn to be deleted, then some indeed can envy the stillborn whose turn comes first. 
I told you, this is just a, it's a dark chapter, but it has a purpose behind it. Again, let's not choose that life. Let's see what a life lived apart from God actually looks like. No one can ever be satisfied with life apart from God, apart from knowing Him, apart from worshiping, apart from fearing Him. Joy and satisfaction, it only comes from God. This leads us to our third point, where we learn that once we think something will satisfy us, our cravings for something more will increase. And this is just the Solomon's worldly wisdom. Hey, I looked out and I saw this. Like, you're going to desire this, and then you're going to run after that thing, and you're going to get that thing. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to consume it, and then moments later, you're going to find yourself wanting more. He says it like this, verse 7, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So again, the problem that Solomon sees here is that the appetites are never satisfied. Or to say it simply, we always want more. We always want more. In verse 7, he tells us that we work to feed ourselves, only to eat and then to eventually grow hungry again and have to go back to work to then earn money, to then go get that food. And it's just the cycle just repeats itself day after day after day after day. I've heard it like this. We work really hard to earn a paycheck. I've not just heard this, I think about it like this too. We work really hard to earn a paycheck, to buy the things we need, only to spend the paycheck on the things we thought we need, then to have to go back to work to then buy more things that we think we need. Or when I think about it on vacation, I'm sure you young folks have thought about it this way as well, is you might get a couple weeks off a year, right? So you work really, really hard to get those couple weeks off a year to go on what? Vacation, right? You do something. You go somewhere. Maybe it's a staycation. Whatever it might be. So you work. You grind it out, let's say, 50 weeks. So you get those two weeks. And do those two weeks satisfy? Like, are you good with just those two weeks? Like when you're done and you've done your beach vacation for a week, the question is, why do you go back every year? Why was that one week not good enough for your life? That's what, that's what Solomon's getting at here. Is the appetite is never satisfied. You might walk away and say, that's the best vacation I've ever had. Has anybody ever said that? Just curious. You raise your hand. We're proud. You've been on best vacations. How many have been on more than one best vacation? Like you've been on a vacation, then it got even better the next time. And then you find yourself, you're continuing to go and you look forward to the next, what's spring break or fall break. And what Solomon is saying is that there's just this thing going on in all of our hearts. One never satisfies. There's this cycle. How many people have only had one meal in your entire life? Because it was so good and it was so satisfying and it sustained you up to this point. 
See, he's, he's just using common sense. It's wisdom here. He's helping us understand God's created us to live a certain way. We're not going to be satisfied with one meal. We're not going to be satisfied with one vacation because God has created it to be that way. And there's always going to be a little bit of dissatisfaction. We're going to find ourselves wanting a little bit more pretty much every day. Philip Ryken says the following, he says, usually we think we can find satisfaction in everything that life has to offer, food, drink, music, beauty, family, and friends, yet, yet desires a tramp, never content to stay at home. It always wants to go out wandering. Our desires are always traveling, but I like what he says here, but never arriving. That's how our desires work. Apart from the grace of God, they just wander. They, they leave our hearts and our minds and, and they run after whatever you're going to eat for lunch. And then it's going to run after whatever it is you want to do later that day. And, and when you go there and you do those things, you might enjoy them a bit. But what he's saying is apart from the grace of God and apart from God actually giving you the ability to enjoy anything that he's given you, it's going to be miserable. And there, there's, a, there's a key there to it, because I, I believe God's created it that way. If you go back to the beginning of this book, you just remember Solomon was saying, I found this thing to be true about wisdom. It's sort of like the way he describes it, it's disturbing a bit to be wise, is what he would say. It's because as he's looked out at life, and he's seen the way God's created this world, he said, some things are just crooked, and they can't be made straight. And then he said, some things in this world, they just don't add up. And he's thinking it from a wise man's point of view, because if a wise man, he's, he's supposed to be able to look at things, and it's all supposed to make sense. And he's saying, I've been given this wisdom, and it doesn't make sense. Haven't you found that to be true? There are just some things in this world that just don't make sense. There's things that are crooked, and they cannot be straightened out. Two plus two does not always equal four. And so there's a bit of frustration that comes with it. And I would say that frustration is a gift from God. It's a gift. And, and what I mean by that is, is it's meant to lead us away from worshiping anything other than God. So when you buy the new boat or you buy the new truck or you buy the, build the new house and you walk in and you love it for like six months and, and then you start to say, oh, I wish I, wish I would have gotten this feature or, or I, I wish I would have done this instead of that. I wish I wouldn't have compromised here and whatever it might be. Like you just realize, like you show up and you enjoy it, but then ultimately reality sets in. And there's a little bit of frustration there. You know what I'm talking about? That's a gift from God. It's an absolute gift because when you feel that, that, that should set off this little bell in your head as a reminder that you're not home. We don't live in a perfect world. You will not ultimately find the satisfaction you ultimately desire in your house, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your truck, in your business, in your job. You can enjoy those things, but you'll never be completely satisfied with those things because that only comes in God. And he's the one who gives us the ability to enjoy these things. This leads us to our fourth point. Life under the sun appears to be the same old thing. 
So as Solomon brings this chapter to a close, he basically looks at life under the sun and he concludes that things are the way they are and they're always going to be the way they're going to be. Nothing really seems to change and there's nothing we can really do to change any of it anyways. So he says it like this, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute, dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And so he doesn't leave this chapter by saying, hey, God can. He just kind of leaves us and he said, man, I've looked at this in life under the sun. It's miserable. If you chase it, you're going to be a miserable person. If you live life apart from God, you're just going to, you're going to, you're going to find dissatisfaction, frustration all over the place, and you're not even going to know what to do with it. Instead, you're going to run after something else thinking that's going to satisfy you, and it won't. And so he just comes to this conclusion. It's like, this is just the way it is. And in there, he just says, I mean, like, honestly, who, who, can, who can dispute with one stronger than he? If this is the way God's created it, who are you to change any of it? What he's getting there is like, you're, just, you're not God. And God's created a world like this, and it's going to be dissatisfying. And he's just sort of left wondering at the end of chapter 6, like, who knows? We're all going to die. Like, who, who knows what's going to happen after this? And the good news for us is that we do. This is where we bring a little bit of joy into this, is, is there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of hope. Because, because we're not here trying to dispute with one stronger than us. We're actually trying to ask the one who's stronger than us, God, to pour out His grace upon us and His Spirit in us so that we might live according to His ways. And his rule, because we trust that he's good and he's kind and he's gracious and he actually knows what he's doing, doesn't he? So I've said this a number of times in these in these messages. We either believe God's in control or we don't. And I would I would say Solomon's trying to help us here say, no, believe that God's in control of all things. Don't find your hope apart from God. Find your hope in a God who's mightily at work in all things, every moment of your day, every circumstance you find yourself in, God is aware of it. He's at work in it. And his word says he's at work in it for our good. He's our almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. He's all powerful, all knowing, perfect in all his ways, holy and just, kind, merciful, gracious and good. And he's love. And he seeks to love us right where we're at. And so we come back to that question. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What's after this? See, we have the hope of heaven. We have the hope of a resurrection. We have a hope of a life spent in heaven forever with Christ and with all believers. See, we know this because we have a good Savior. He died on a cross, but God raised him from the dead. And one day this world will all be wrapped up. 
You're, you're not going to find the satisfaction, complete satisfaction here. But one day, one day when we find ourselves standing before Christ together in heaven, we'll, we'll understand joy in the fullest. So let's not put our hope in the things of this world. Let's not seek to live a life apart from God. Instead, let us, by the grace of God, pick up a cross, follow Christ, and fear God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity to gather together, and we thank you for this chapter and the ways in which you speak, Lord, as you hold up pictures of what life really looks like, Lord, for those who live life apart from you. And we ask that you would give us the power and the ability to fear you and to enjoy all that you have given to us. And Lord, when dissatisfaction comes in and, and we have those moments of frustration with the things of this world, Lord, we would, we would use those as reminders to turn away from this world and ultimately trust in you. And Lord, give us that ability. Lord, we do want to find joy in whatever it is you're giving us. And Lord, as we leave here today, bless us, bless our travels home, bless our fellowship as we gather around. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. As you leave, may the Lord pour out his spirit upon you. May you experience his peace this week. Have a great Sunday.